0: You're listening to Fighting Terror, the podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Cretin, senior Europe advisor to the Counter Extremism Project and former European. Story. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorist and extremist groups
1: globally. <laughs> Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Joan Smith, a London based accomplished journalist and a feminist and human rights campaigner. She was co-chair of the Mayor of London's Violence Against Women and Girls Board from 2013 to 2021 and is a former chair of the English Pen Writers in Prison Committee. Joan has published many novels, both nonfiction and fiction of which two of her crime novels have been filmed by the BBC. She's also written multiple columns for many newspapers, including The Times, Guardian, The New York Times, Daily Telegraph and Independent titles, as well as a long-running column for The Tribune. She also blogs regularly for The Telegraph. In today's podcast with Joan, we'll discuss the findings of her latest book, Homegrown, How Domestic Violence Turns Men into Terrorists and the Link Between Domestic Violence and Terrorism. Joan, I'm absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast today and really looking forward to this discussion. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Um, So, Joan, maybe if if we were to kick off with a general question i mean this is a really uh, unusual and largely unexplored area so what inspired you to start looking into it as a as a subject for your research and then what 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 led you to to write the book ultimately
0: i began to notice about 10 years ago how many mass killers in the united states of which there are obviously many how many of them had either a history of domestic violence or actually included family members, mothers, girlfriends, ex-girlfriends, so on in their in their shootings. And it quite soon became clear that this was a very established pattern. And in over half of mass shootings in the US, there is that background of domestic abuse. Then I began to notice the same thing applying to terrorist attacks. And I think the one that really made me think hard about this was in 2016, the Bastille Day attack in Nice. And the perpetrator was a man called Mohamed Lawesh Boulal, um, who will be familiar to some of your listeners. Mm-hmm. And he hired a lorry, drove into people leaving a fireworks display in Nice, killing a lot of people, injuring hundreds. And he claimed to be, I mean, Islamist terrorists. Now, when I looked at his background, that was actually very new in his biography. What he was, was a very, very long-standing domestic abuser. He um, he had abused his family, his wife, his children, his mother-in-law for several years, and the attack only happened after the, his wife finally managed to throw him out. And he only began to be interested in Islam, in Islam at all a few months before, before the attack. And I thought, what this man is is a very violent man who was angry at being excluded from the family, couldn't have access anymore to his primary victims, and so he turned it outwards. And I began looking at that, and I saw it happening again and again. So in 2017, when there were four lethal terrorist attacks um, on, the, on the UK mainland, three were Islamists. A fourth was by someone who claimed to be um, a right-wing terrorist, the Finsbury Park attack. When I looked at those, they were all committed by men who had some history of domestic of, domestic abuse, either as perpetrators or as people who'd suffered it and witnessed it. And I started bringing this up over and over again at meetings, at, mainly at City Hall in London, because I was chairing the. Um, Mayor's Violence Against Women and Girls Board and but I was sitting in meetings with senior officers and they, they said nothing like this had ever crossed their minds. They didn't know anything about it. And I kept bringing it up and kept being told there was nothing in it. And at that point, I thought, well, the only thing to do is go away and write a book,
1: which is what I did. From your findings, even before you wrote your your book, I think the figure that that you quoted there fifty percent of um, perpetrators of mass shootings in the U.S. had had um, a record of some sort of, of domestic violence or um, violence against women. That is um, really extraordinary and something that I think is not really in the public consciousness. And I suppose that maybe leads me to ask, in terms of your book, you you identify the fact that how we treat, so how the media treats, how, um, you know, policing authorities treat domestic violence and violence against women as compared to how they approach you know, massive public attacks, terrorist attacks is very, very different. Is that something that you think is perhaps a reason for the, the lack of joined up thinking here or the lack of a connection in the minds of um, policymakers. Yes, but I also think it's it's because terrorist acts are very public. That's that's their purpose and their nature.
0: Whereas domestic violence goes on in a private setting. A lot of people aren't even aware of it. They aren't aware how prevalent it is. In the UK, somewhere between two and three women are murdered by a current or ex-partner every week. Um, that that figure actually includes some matricides. There's a surprising number of women who are killed by their adult sons. That has never been given the attention that it should have. And I think one of the consequences of that is that the people who know a hell of a lot about male violence, who are women, who work in this area, who work with perpetrators, who work with victims, nobody ever consulted them about terrorism because terrorism is not primarily seen as a question of male violence. It's seen as a question of ideology. So it's almost like you have male violence here. And there's a group of people who know about that. And you have terrorism over here. And there's a group of people who know about that. And they don't talk to each other. And it's very frustrating for women who have seen the way in which violence in the home darts and escalates. And there's a very similar trajectory to public acts of terrorism. And and nobody was very interested in talking to us about it, which is one of the reasons. I I came into this as a complete outsider. You know, my background isn't in terrorism. But I think in a way that was a very good thing because the book brings a fresh eye to to, to the subject of terrorism. And it actually says, what if we talk about terrorism as a manifestation of male violence and bring our understanding of male violence to looking at it instead of seeing it as only and exclusively a question of ideology
1: i think that's um that's really interesting Uh, and i suppose it's not unusual for different types of crime different security threats to be really segregated in terms of how they're approached both from a policing point of view and um and also from a from a policy making perspective and i guess that's one of the the real learnings from uh, your research and um and you know how you've exposed this nexus between between domestic violence and and terrorism in terms of the, the manner in which you explain this this concept in the book you really provide a compelling account of the many ways in which um violence against women and girls including domestic violence, even harassment, sexual exploitation feature in the, in the lives of many of these men um, that you've identified. Could you maybe give some more examples of uh, some of those perpetrators? I know Khalid Massoud uh, no. is one. Uh, he was the, the, the person responsible for the uh, London Westminster Bridge attack. Are, are there many others that you would point to where these, uh, the, this nexus is, is really evident?
0: Oh, there's loads. And what's interesting about Khalid Masood is that he is seen as primarily an Islamist terrorist, but he's actually very, very similar to Darren Osborne, who is another of the 2017 attackers. So he was the man who attacked the fin- Finsbury Park Mosque in North London, drove a van into worshippers leaving the mosque, killing an elderly man and injuring several other people. He survived and is now in prison unlike the other 2017 perpetrators. But he had a huge history of alcoholism, of domestic violence, of petty crime. So when he, when Darren Osborne appeared in court, it was revealed that he had over a hundred previous convictions, including for assaulting his partner. And the attack only happened when she finally threw him out. And so he he had actually radicalized about six weeks before the attack, and suddenly started you know mouthing off in pubs about how much he hated Muslims and things like that. Previously, he hadn't shown any interest in politics at all. And and Khalid Masood had his his first wife. He he was a Muslim convert. His first wife was a young Muslim woman. Um, left him after three months of marriage because she was so terrified of him and moved to the other end of the country. His second marriage had broken down shortly before the attack. He had come to the attention of MI5. He he had been an individual of interest in in the past. But what what struck me about both of them is just is just that really they are very violent men with a history of domestic abuse who also got radicalized. So you can see the crossover there. So when when after the came out, I was approached by um, counterterrorism policing and the Home Office, who said we're very interested in this. And I had to do this from public sources, which was actually quite hard work and took a long time. They had access to the data I didn't have which is prevent data. So they set up something called Operation Starlight, Project Starlight, which I was involved in. And they went through half of all the prevent referrals in 2019, looking for a background of domestic abuse for the first time. And roughly about 5% of the population will have some connection with domestic abuse, the general population. So this is in terms of um, being a a victim of or perpetrator or witness of domestic violence. Um, When they looked at the 3,000... Prevent suspects. The figure was forty percent. So this is huge—a huge difference from the rest of the population. And and they, this was at a time when when people interviewing prevent suspects were not necessarily looking for a background of domestic abuse. So they are changing the way prevent assesses suspects. And that's very, that was what I wanted when I wrote this book is that domestic violence has to be seen as one of the big red flags when someone is, is, is referred by a social worker or a teacher or a family member who says, I'm worried about this person. They're expressing very radical, violent views, whether it's on the right wing, extreme or Islamist. If they also have this history of domestic abuse, then I think that should propel them to the front line of the people that the authorities are looking for.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that statistic is so out of kilter with the national average. It immediately obviously raises red flags. It's it's interesting. I mean, you've pointed to a few examples now of individuals, whether, whether far right or Islamist um, um, radicals, where they have been radicalized at a much later stage than you might anticipate. And I suppose I'm curious to hear your thoughts in terms of how How ideology interplays, whether it's Islamist ideology or far right or far left, um, how it interplays with this tendency towards violence. And, you know, is there too much of an emphasis on ideology uh, in uh, in our approach to uh, counterterrorism, radicalization, de-radicalization? Or, you know, is the are these people simply uh, attracted to those ideologies because perhaps they're more sympathetic to to these violent tendencies in any case.
0: If you look at the impact on living with domestic abuse, so if you're looking at children who grew up in a violent household, particularly boys, one of the things they exhibit is hypervigilance. So they overestimate threat. They're not good at working out what is dangerous to them and what isn't. And they're looking all the time for something that might threaten them. If you have young men who have that background, and they then encounter some kind of extremist ideology. What that ideology will do is magnify that hypervigilance. It will say, Yes, you're right to be afraid. If you're a Muslim, for example, they are out to get you. If you're if, if it's a right wing organization that they make contact with, they will say, Yes, you're, you know, it's it, it's absolutely right. You know, the, all all the kind of awful theories that we hear on the right. What they're doing is they're finding individuals who are already damaged, who also, who've already got a, a different threshold for violence, and they are providing a sort of, you know, in inverted commas, a justification for that violence. I was very struck when I was doing the research by how many of the perpetrators, and I, I'm talking here about men who committed, you know, huge numbers of murders, how many of them radicalise quite late? And there's a, there's a subset who radicalise when they're excluded from the family home. And so they're already angry, they're habituated to violence, and finally, somehow, the wife or partner manages to get, get to get help. Probably from the family rather than the authorities, get them out of the family home. And they're then, they have no target. They no longer have an easy, easy access to a target. And they are absolutely ripe for radicalization. So that, that group is one that I think we need to be. Be very very worried about, and I think um, David Anderson, in his follow up to, to his work on the 2017 bombings, he actually suggested that where there are sub- where there's a closed subject of interest, if there is a big change in the family circumstances and one of the things he's talking about is family breakdown, that may be a reason to go back and look at those people again because the the window between family breakdown, radicalisation and committing the, the atrocity is often surprisingly short.
1: Hmm. Uh, really interesting. And in in the book, one of the um points that you make quite strongly is you you articulate your view that um ISIS is effectively a, a gang like organization. I think you refer to it as a rapist state. And I, I think that's a really interesting observation in terms of how ISIS you know, preys upon and exploits this culture of misogyny and uh, also, I suppose, young men who are, you know, ripe for for radicalization. Is that the case with most of these um, extremist groups and terrorist groups? Are they, um, you know, is this is this a characteristic that they are seeking out and identifying and preying upon? I think, particularly with ISIS. I mean, I
0: think there are also right-wing organisations who are very ready to kind of en- engage with angry, angry young men who find them. But ISIS was very sophisticated, as you know, and they had a, um, a media operation based in Deir in northern Syria, and they were a- they were actively trolling. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, looking at Facebook posts of angry young men, and in some cases, you know, like Safabula, the awful case I-, I write about in the book, the the young woman who was con- the young woman who was convicted of terrorist offence. Um, Planning terrorist offences with her sister and her mother in London. Um, they're actively looking for people expressing anger and distress about the society they live in and encouraging them in these fantasies. And in the case of ISIS, there that some of the, the the think tank in America has interviewed some foreign recruits who were um, captured and, and after after going to Syria to, or, or Iraq to join ISIS, and some of them have explicitly said that the the opportunity to own sex slaves and inverted commas is one of the reasons why they joined. I mean, I don't think people fully realise how explicit ISIS was in using misogyny and the chance to uh, abuse women. It was absolutely central to their to their recruiting strategy.
1: One of the features that um, I suppose uh, we're probably all aware of, but it, it becomes very important in the context of, of your findings, is... And the fact that many of the terrorists that have been identified as having um, histories of violence towards women have not ever been prosecuted. Um, And there may not there may not be any formal record of it. So I suppose question one is why Um, is it? Just simply a case of a lack of reporting by the victims, or is it um, um, maybe a, a lack of resources and focus, priority in the policing system? And and how much of a challenge then is that to to address this this, this connection with with terrorism and um, the the broader public threat?
0: It's, it's a huge challenge. So, um, at the, you know, a couple of days ago, there was this horrible attack on the 4th of July parade in the United States. And the young man who's now been taken into custody and apparently confessed, his relatives reported him to the police because he was threatening to kill them. And the police discovered that he had an arsenal of weapons. No arrests, and this is very, very common. And I think you know, domestic abuse has always been a kind of Cinderella subject when it comes to law enforcement. Um, in London, uh, the Metropolitan Police is now in special measures, and one of the reasons is it's really poor um, response to to this kind of crimes. We have six police forces in in the UK now who are in special measures because of their, you know, they're, they're basically not doing their job. Greater Manchester Police uh, is in, has been in special measures for some time,
1: and I think. Can it you was, explain what? Is- Maybe explain what a special measure is. So, uh,
0: the HM Inspector of Constabulary inspects forces every five years, and there's a number of parameters where they decide whether they're meeting their public service obligations. If they think something is going wrong, they will step in and say that it's called an engaged process. And so they step in and say, you know, the force has actually now got to improve in these areas. Now, the six forces, as I said, currently in the engaged process. In Greater Manchester, um, which it's been in special measures quite a long time time. I think they were actually dismissing one in four complaints of domestic abuse without investigation. Now, one of the things I've always argued is that the police are not Listening to the victims of domestic abuse, and that has several effects. The first, obviously, is that women are left to deal with domestic abuses, basic in privatized ways. I mean, women are stuck with, you know, having to go and stay with their mom or a sister, or you know, sleeping on someone's floor. That they're, they're, they're not. The police are not even using the powers open to them to exclude violent men from from the home. But I've also said for a long time that some of those women will have absolutely essential information about not just the abusive tendencies of their partner, but they're flirting with radicalization. These are the women who will know that, you know, their partner is interested in right-wing politics, that, you know, that they are following, you know, right-wing organizations in South Africa, for example, racist organizations. They will know if their if their husband or partner is going to a mosque where there are radical preachers and so on. But because their own experience of the authorities is so bad and they don't trust the police, we're not actually utilizing that vital source of information, as well as not protecting women and children.
1: There is obviously a huge amount of room for improvement um, in respect of all of that. And uh, I'd like to I'd like to get into your suggestions and recommendations from your experience in a moment. Uh, Just maybe one final question before that. I interviewed the head of the Prevent program on this uh, podcast um, a few months ago, and uh, we discussed the fact that uh, recent figures published relating to the Prevent program showed that seventy percent um, of the individuals referred to Prevent suffer from mental health issues and other vulnerabilities. Does uh, so? In your view, does uh, a, you know a history of violence, uh, societal exclusion, mental health issues, etc., remove? Um, you know the the agency of um, of these individuals who are, who are being radicalized um, and joining um, or getting involved in uh, terrorist activities, extremist activities. You know, do you think that's a cop out, or do you think there's something to that? And I know this is a, I guess, a debate that that rages in the in the context of um, radicalization. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a cop
0: out. I think it's just. I think it's it's true. Um, but I think what you have to. The way to look at it is to say that individuals who have mental health problems which are not being addressed are once again. Probably a target group for extremists because they know that, you know, most most human beings actually, you know, you and I are not going to go out on the street and suddenly, you know, get in a car and mow down pedestrians. We're not going to get knives, guns. We're not even going to attempt that. So there is a group. There are groups of people and they're overlapping groups who are more likely to to commit that kind of behavior. And I think the idea of a threshold is important for most of us. Killing other people, hurting other people is unthinkable. But there are groups of mostly young men, and this is a lot of this is about male violence um, who are disturbed, who have mental health problems which aren't being being addressed, but also who are acting out at home i've always said that there's an element of you know that terrorist practice at home they practice on their on their wives their, their mothers their children because it gives them a sense of control so i think all of that is there and you can you can acknowledge the the role of mental health problems without but at the same time people still have individual agency and people have responsibility so i don't think it's a cop out to say that a lot of people who get involved in terrorism, men who get involved in terrorism, that they have mental health problems. There are also a lot of them are domestic abusers, but that doesn't take away their responsibility not to behave like that. But it, it also means that we have to be able to, to identify the people who are likely to be in those groups and we have to do something about it.
1: Mm-hmm. I think um, I think your, your research um, and your relentless focus on this has really thrown up a new uh, a new resource for for police forces to make society safer uh, potentially and to identify terrorists, potential terrorists, extremists who are on the verge um, of perpetrating violent crimes um, in public places. And, you know, that that's something that anyone who's serious about tackling the threat and the destruction of uh, terrorism uh, should and most likely will welcome. Project Starlight, I think, is really interesting. I mean, you know, you're saying that was prompted that piece of research or analysis, if you like, of Prevent in 2019 was prompted by your book. And it clearly showed a, a vastly disproportionate number of um, perpetrators or of those referred to Prevent, I should say, who uh, have a history of, of violent crime Towards women primarily that um, that's really stunning and I suppose my question is you know in your conversations with um, those who are running the prevent program and we know that there has been a review of prevent and um, we're due to, to see uh, um, uh, the findings from that review in due course. do you feel confident that that this will become a new strand of the prevent program and the efforts um, to prevent radicalization in the in the United Kingdom?
0: Well, I spoke to Alex Carlyle when he began the the review of Prevent, and he was certainly very interested in those ideas. I mean, he then stepped back, but certainly he was very open to them. And in my conversations with counterterrorism policing, one of the things that they are very interested in is the idea that um, the channel panel should have an expert social worker who who has the background in domestic abuse sitting on the channel panel. So, as you know, you, if someone's referred to the Prevent Programme, there's a sort of initial analysis do, you know, do they require further investigation? If they do, they're sent to, um, it's escalated up to a statutory body called a Channel Panel Now I talked to someone who runs the Channel Panel in Croydon, South London, and he said that they had brought an IDVA, an Independent Domestic Violence Advisor onto the Channel Panel to sit in meetings, and they said the effect was extraordinary because what she was identifying was how many cases, particularly of teenage boys or girls, but mostly boys, where domestic abuse was a major component of the radicalization. And he actually told me that in one or two cases, Mm -hmm. once they realized that this boy or girl was turning to extreme websites because they were being abused in the home, once the abuse was addressed, the threat of radicalization diminished. And that, to me, is an incredibly important finding. And I think one of the things Preventer looking at is how to make how to roll that out so that the channel panel actually has that expertise and knowledge of domestic abuse and can identify it both to help the person, if it's a young person, help the person um, get out of that toxic environment, but also to identify the people who are most likely to commit atrocities. Because remember, the the people that I'm, the perpetrators I looked at in my book, they're the ones who who are not just abusers, but escalated to fatal attacks. And they are the ones who are most likely to have this background so i think if prevent incorporates that understanding into their work i think it might i mean i always i always had a, a huge ambition when i wrote this book i wanted to write this book to save lives i also wanted to improve the way you know raise the raise domestic violence as a priority in policing and i think the first the first one we're, we're getting there the second one is more difficult because we're dealing with police forces who don't have a good history of dealing with domestic violence
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I I think that's true although you do see you know across across the western world you know certainly enhanced legislation you know in terms of sentencing uh, for domestic violence and also you know new new criminal offences being identified like stalking coercive control things that didn't exist um, as criminal offences in many jurisdictions um, you know 10-15 years ago so um, it's it's slow progress but um, but I suppose um, it's happening to some extent. And just a quick... Um Follow-up question about Croydon. Croydon being, I think, a pretty pretty progressive um, area uh, in terms of um, its approach um, and sort of inclusive uh, approach to um, to uh, tackling uh, extremism and and um, prevention of radicalisation. At the moment, uh, what I'm detecting is that that's that's a sort of an own initiative uh, by Croydon, including um, the independent domestic violence expert in that process. So uh, am I. I, am I overstepping to suggest that maybe you would like to see in future that that would become standard um, throughout the country in, in the approach to prevent?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, to go back to one of the cases, uh, case studies in my book, the DeGay's family in Brighton. So this was a family of, I think, five boys and uh, Originally from Libya, and it's a very notorious case because the eldest son went to to Syria and joined the Al Nusra front. Two of his younger brothers went out and were, were actually killed. A fourth brother died in a, a drug related with murder in a drug related incident in Brighton. Um, and it, one of the boys was actually referred to prevent and went before a Channel panel. But this was this was about. Eight or nine years ago, and I think there was no understanding at all then of the of the role of, of domestic abuse. And what, what then became apparent was that the fam- the whole family, including their mother, was subject to an absolute litany of domestic abuse over years and years and years. Their father was an extremist, and uh, and and you know, the boys were they were they're a classic example of boys who join gangs, who get involved in petty crime, but also then are, are vulnerable to radicalization. Now, had that channel panel had somebody sitting on it who Recognize that, there might have been a different outcome. So, yes, I mean, I, I think having somebody on channel panels who recognizes that the, the significance of that background is absolutely vital.
1: Mm-hmm. That's really clear. Um, a comment I, I, I read um, in praise of, of your book um, was from Lord Hain, who's the former Secretary of State for Northern Ireland uh, and obviously somebody who is very familiar with the security threat from extremism and, and terrorism in this part of the world. And um, he said that the book is the missing link to. Um, for anti-terror chiefs, for police and policymakers, um, so that's quite an endorsement, <laughs> which you must be pleased about. But, <laughs> um, but um, you know, I suppose on the final point, um, you know, he, he, anti-terror chiefs, police, and policymakers, where do you where do you see the scope uh, for policymakers to really uh, change the approach? Um, to you know, use the learning from your research and and other research which you've referenced um, around this. Topic, this link between domestic violence and terrorism um, to prevent future terror attacks uh, on british British soil and indeed um, to you know become a benchmark for other jurisdictions um, which have experienced uh, high rates of extremism and terrorism in especially in recent years
0: well I, I've been really impressed by how open um, counterterrorism policing and, and the people running for prevent are to the ideas in the book and one of them pointed out that latterly there've been a number Number of very of, of high-ranking women who are involved in Prevent, and I think they are very open to these ideas. And one one of them, I think the number two at Prevent has a background um, as a, a as a serving police officer in in running domestic violence units. So so really, I was to, I I didn't know it, but I was talking to a structure at Prevent, which was actually very op- open to these ideas. The the problem is. You know you 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 mentioned a moment ago the the huge amount of legislation that's being passed in the UK to deal with um, domestic violence the problem is the police not using it so when I was chairing the volk board at City hall every it was a quarterly meeting I would ask how many domestic violence um, prevention orders they'd used and these are orders which allow the police to go before a magistrate and exclude a man from the home for 30 days after a domestic violence incident which means that it gives the family a respite and it also means means that you know, they're more likely to give evidence, to give witness statements, and there's more likely to be a prosecution. And they would think and they'd say, oh, 29 or something, you know, and it was just amazing to me that they weren't using the legislation that's available. When coercive control became um, a criminal offence at the end of 2015, the, there were so few prosecutions. Um, and th- this goes back to you know, what I was talking about before, the number of forces that are in special measures. There are problems of training. Supervision, how the, how the police use existing laws and new legislation, and I don't think that that conversation joins up with the the whole conversation around terrorism. And I, I mean, I keep saying that once you understand just what a what a high proportion of men who commit terrorist offences have this background, then it really means that you have to actually incorporate that in, into 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 how you prevent terrorist attacks. But that but they need the information from police forces. Salman Abedi, the Manchester Arena bomber, he uh, was he he was involved before, five five years before the bombing. He punched a, a Muslim girl in the head at college for wearing uh, what he said was a too short skirt. And this was somebody who kept coming to the attention of the authorities because he was expressing Islamist ideas. And Greater Manchester Police decided to deal with that case through restorative justice. So he sat down and said he was really sorry and that he had anger management issues. So when my five asked, to Manchester police if he had any convictions he didn't And you see that's a really really powerful example of how a crucial piece of information about Islamist and misogynist radicalization was missed and look at the
1: result of that. It's absolutely tragic and devastating for all of the families that' concerned. That, I think that's a, a, a superb example to end on, um, and I think that you have identified um, weaknesses, but also opportunities uh, for for significant improvement. Uh, I think your your research and your work has made a really big contribution already. Um, the fact that um, the Prevent Service um, is acting on it and uh, in different ways has has um, has very much acknowledged the the value of. Um, of your research um i think is uh is extremely positive but obviously a huge amount um, of work to be done so i really very grateful to you for sharing your time today for sharing your expertise it's been a pleasure talking to you Um, fascinating discussion uh, and uh, i look forward to seeing and reading more from you in the the period ahead so thank you so much joan smith for for your time uh, and your contribution today
0: well, thank you for taking it all so seriously because I, I am very passionate about about getting this link understood. So thank you.
1: I can I can certainly uh, see and hear that, and know uh, it's been a pleasure, and it's it's wonderful talking to somebody who has committed so much time to 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 really yeah, get into the bottom of this subject, uh, and somebody who's such a passionate advocate for it. So, um, a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about fighting terror and the Counter Extremism Project
0: on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website.